So we've now finished a complete cycle of the four immeasurables. And then following that, of course, never heard it called this, but what else? The four greats, uh, great compassion, and so forth. I have received, uh, like so many other people in, in Lumbrium and elsewhere, uh, teachings on the cultivation of bodhicitta, and the Lambrium, the bodhicharava, and so forth, bodhicharavatara, or guide to the bodhisattva's way of life, or from on numerous occasions. Um, but in terms of a real confession, I, I don't recall ever having received any extensive teachings on either the four immeasurables or the four greats. I've just kind of put it together. Nothing really original. I mean, you, you can see the sources. Uh, it's from Buddhaghosa, largely. Some, some reading I've done in Tibetan Buddhism, and then the liturgies are there. Uh, I didn't make up anything there at all, you know, starting with the phrase, you know, why couldn't, why couldn't? It's a classic liturgy. But where, how it's usually done is you just recite, um, you recite the liturgy, and then you kind of try to keep up, you know, reciting the whole liturgy in one minute, for all four. You know. So, uh, I find them enormously meaningful and transformative, and profound. And they're classic teachings, there's no question. The Four Immeasurables then really right there, uh, very prominently in the Pali Canon, very clearly, beautifully articulated, explained in the Theravada tradition. I, I draw a lot of the teachings, meditation from Buddhaghosa. I think he's simply brilliant. And the Four Greats, it, they crop up here and there. Primarily it's great compassion. But it is a set of four. But I've never received any teachings on any of them really, except that they just crop up here and there. Uh, so, on the one hand, this is kind of like m my approach, because I don't, I don't know anybody else who teaches it. At the same time, there's nothing my about it at all. The four immeasurables, the four greats, I didn't invent anything there. But I am kind of taking them very seriously uh, as actual meditative practices and the Atisha who inspires me limitlessly uh, as he was making his comparisons between Indian Buddhism, in which he was absolutely immersed, and one of its greatest are, are proponents, and then what he saw of Tibetan Buddhism a thousand years ago, uh, he had a number of ironic statements to make to the Tibetans, and one of them is, only you Tibetans know how to develop bodhicitta without developing the four immeasurables. <laughs> and so I take that very much to heart. Uh, it's not to question, there's no question in my mind that even without necessarily focusing on these four and then the second four in a meditative sequence like that, even without doing so, have there been who knows how many countless Tibetans over the last thousand years or longer who've authentically developed bodhicitta and have become spectacular human beings, enlightened beings. Do I have any doubt about that at all? I think you can tell. I mean, zero. Uh, there are simply many ways of cultivating bodhicitta, but I think this sequence of the four immeasurables and then the four greats in the sequence we've done here, I think, is certainly legitimate. It's absolutely authentic. Uh, the formatting, a little bit, I don't know, maybe there, well, there is something for me, but the content is absolutely traditional. And I do find very significant also that there's a sequence from the loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity pushing the equanimity. And then instead of starting with great loving-kindness, start with great compassion. It just seems perfect. And then that natural sequence, great compassion, great loving-kindness, empathetic joy, and then finally this, just another whole dimension of equanimity. 
as we explored yesterday. So, utterly traditional and quite novel, passing on a lineage, and there's, but there's no lineage. So a little bit of an irony there, a little bit of a mixed message. Yeah? But, you know, like developing shamatha, when all is said and done. It's, like, it's, it's really very much like developing shamatha. If you have a method, and it comes from Hinduism, or Christianity, or from Theravada, or Mahayana, or Dzogchen, um, you remember the, remember the brass key, the silver key, and the golden key? If the door is locked, just open it with whatever key works. You know, I think there's sometimes too much emphasis on, well, is that a pure Galupa approach? Is that a Nima approach? We're not like those Galupas. They just study, you know, is that a Nima approach or is that a Galupa approach? You know, because I don't want to go near Galupa. Or is that a Theravada approach? Oh, crap, I don't want to go Hinayana again. I'm a Mahayanist. Or the Theravadans might, oh, not Mahayana. Not Mahayana. No, no. We want the Buddha's, Buddha Vach, Buddha Buddha's teachings. And let alone this Hindus, my goodness, they're not even Buddhists. You know. So, but if you're sick, you know, that's where people get really practical really quickly. If you're sick and your doctor's a Hindu, a Taoist, an atheist, or a Buddhist, or a Dzogchenba, if you're sick, really, when all is said and done, all you really care about is, did you get healed or not? If you're practicing shamatha, to my mind, there's no such thing as a pure method of shamatha. There's ineffective and effective, more effective, less effective. And frankly, I'm just a complete pragmatist here. I've seen some of the Christian's writings. I think they're quite brilliant. Uh, I've not found anything there that I have not found that really appeals to me, that really draws to me, so my practice is simply Buddhist. But, um, you know, the, the knowledge is there. So this is quite clear. I mean, we're talking about technology here, right? So if you want to build a laser, you don't worry about whether it's a German design or an American design or whatever. You just, does it, does it work or not? Did you get a laser out of that or not, you know? Uh, and there is an interesting, I'm going to ramble just a tiny bit here, but I studied the history of science and philosophy fairly extensively. And there is an interesting point here just about lasers, just a curiosity. So please, pardon me if I'm waiting, wasting your time. But I did study it when I took this marvelous graduate course at Stanford. And it turned out one fellow, it was, it was invented, the laser, about, oh, about the time I was born, 1950 or so. It was developed, it was published, the exactly how to make one was published in peer-reviewed scientific journal. Great breakthrough, fantastic, you know, laser technology. But the fellow who developed it, he told everything exactly how, in, in, in clear print, this is how you develop one. And other people couldn't do it. They, they read his article, and they tried to replicate it, and they couldn't. And then they'd invite him to, to their labs and say, would you please show us, because we read it and we just couldn't. He would come to their labs. This is what I read. It was a long time ago, but it wasn't made up. He would come to them, and then he'd show them. He would give them the oral transmission. And then they could do it. Yeah. And oral, they call it now Poliani, Michael Poliani called it implicit learning. Implicit learning. Explicit learning, you get from the page. Okay, you do this, you do this, and do this, right? But the implicit learning is something, you can, you can sense what it means, and as you're, you're actually talking to somebody, you're showing, and they're getting more than just data. They're picking up something more, and that's what actually happened. So the more the oral transmission uh, uh, proliferated, then more and more laser created. Now we have this fantastic array of laser technology. So this is why, I mean, Tibetans and other traditional people around the world have known that the learning starts not by reading. They don't say reading, thinking, and meditation, right? They say hearing, thinking, and meditation. And so they've known about implicit learning a lot, a long, long time. And that 
And they keep on emphasizing hearing long, long, long after Buddhists started writing down texts. So at the early, early days, you could say, well, hearing, because they didn't write it down. Okay, fair enough. But once they've written it down, you can say, look, I already got it. What I need you for? You know, I can read the book myself. And it's quite true. And you can get explicit learning that way. But implicit learning looks like having that contact. And so that does raise issues for anybody who's passionate about education. How much can you really learn from, from a computer? All the remote learning and all of that? I mean, in a way, it's very cool. But are we missing something? For missing oral transmission. You know, by a person who understands and conveying understanding to another person who understands and not just feeding data into a computer. So it's an interesting point. I have no axe to grind here, but uh, this whole theme of implicit learning certainly is real. It's not made up. And so, so for the laser, so for shamatha, and frankly, so for bodhicitta. Right? Whether you follow a sangha's method, all sentient beings being our mother and really following that, whether you follow Shantideva's method, exchange of self and other, whether you follow Tsongkhapa's method, combining of those two into 11, 11 steps, right? 11? 11 steps of developing bodhicitta. Each one of these has worked, right? Uh, this 4 plus 4 is not quite either of those, but it's not exactly starting a new sect either. You know, the Alan Wallace sect. It's, you know, it's, they were already there, right? But we're not quite finished. We're not quite finished, even coming to great equanimity, as sublime as it is, and, as, and even with this spin, this interpretation, a great equanimity being, you know, really aspiring for the vision of pure equality of a bodhidharma. You know, very good, but it's still not bodhicitta. Great equality, great equanimity is not bodhicitta. So there is something that comes, and here, this is now straight transmission from the wonderful teachings I've had on the Lamrim, the Bodhicharvatara, and so forth from my early Galupa training, and mid, middle and later Galupa training. And that is, there's something else that follows that. Whatever, whatever sequence you're following, whatever method you're following, there comes a point that, you, that it's indispensable to cultivate something called in Tibetan, hlaksam. Hlak, hlaksam. And hlak is something special, superior, like tong is vipassana. And pashana means to see, and vi is something exceptional, superior, extraordinary. And so insight, as opposed to simply sight, it's insight, or special insight, penetrating insight, something, a type of seeing that is exceptional, be out of the ordinary. That's vipassana. And so likewise, here's a special intent, because sampa simply means a resolve, an intention, volition, something we intend or pledge to do. And so it's luck, but it's something exceptional, superior, extraordinary. And so what is this luck sam? simply call it the special special intent, but it's just one of very several okay translations. The special intent, it's now it's coming out of that whole crescendo that one can say it's starting to brew in immeasurable loving kindness and then move and then starts growing and growing in the crescendo through the four immeasurables and then really picking up in the four greats all the way through great equanimity. And, and it's now kind of a summation, it's putting this all together into one resolve. We see the resolve coming up repeatedly for each of the four grades, right? Because it's more than an aspiration. For each one, it's a resolve. I shall do it. I shall do it. And that better be coming from a very deep place, otherwise it looks pretty crazy. You know, megalomania and all of that. Well, now from that same deep place comes this extraordinary resolve. That's my translation. Extraordinary resolve. Hlaksam. 
And you see, there's nothing really new here, but it is a synthesis. And that is, the resolve is, I shall liberate all sentient beings from suffering and the causes of suffering and bring each one to liberation, to enlightenment, to perfection. I shall relieve, free them from all obscurations, which are the underlying causes of all suffering, and I'll bring each one to the awakening of a Buddha. So that actually has gone a bit further now. Because it's really, a sp- I will bring each one to the awakening of a Buddha. Right? And bear in mind, the Buddhist worldview is not small. It's never been planet Earth surrounded by 4,000 stars, which is what it was until Copernicus. Uh, it's always been vast, at least as vast as that of modern cosmology. So this has to be coming from a very deep place. But I shall do this. I shall do this. And if one can arouse that in a meaningful way, that you actually mean it, in other words, not giving lip service or just going through some religious liturgy or a catechism, but you actually are resolving, bringing forth that resolve with all sentient beings and all the Buddhas as your witness, which is a big deal. Right? You don't want to lie to them. To lie to, all, to, lie to one sentient being, like I'll, I'll give you $5 this afternoon and say, oh, no, I won't. To lie and then say, no, I, I just... I changed my mind. Bad karma. That's bad karma. It's called the karma of... Uh, if you do that, if you promise to do something, an act of generosity, so if you want to be careful about intentions. If you say, oh, Michael, I'll, 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 own you, I'll, I'll uh, mow your lawn tomorrow for free. I just wanted to, you know, you've been so kind to me. I'm going to come and mow your lawn tomorrow. And don't I want anything in return. And then the next day, I'm a no-show. And Michael says, well, uh, that was a nice promise you made, Alan, but my lawn isn't mowed. I got busy. Sorry, Michael. I, I, I got really busy. But it was so hot, you know. And I saw your lawn. It's really long. And, uh, you know, and you don't have an electric mower. I thought you had an electric mower. And, you know, and so, but, but sorry, you know, but you'll get over it. I just got preta karma. Right? Making a promise and then just backing up. I said, sorry, that's preta karma. Not mowing his lawn. Okay, now, all sentient beings, I'm calling everybody, and for the Buddhas as well, you're my witness, all sentient beings, I'm now pledging to liberate you from all, all of you, each one of you, from all suffering and the causes of suffering, and to bring each one of you to perfect awakening. If that's bad karma to be, you know, to be born as a preta, then to make that kind of promise to all sentient beings, and not mowing his lawn, right? All sentient beings, I'm going to mow your lawn. No, it's much bigger than that you know, way beyond mowing somebody's lawn. Uh, that's like, what, Prater for about trillion, gazillion cosmic eons? You know, big lie. Big, big, big lie. Especially if at some point you say, oh, the heck with it. I want to become just Travagana. I want to follow Travagana. I want my own liberation. Sorry about that, but good luck. You know, that's not good karma. So taking, you know, making that resolve, one sees, is uh, not trivial, it's not lip service, not a catechism. A catechism, I'm sure, can be very meaningful. What I'm saying is not an empty ritual. Uh, but if you're going to make something like that, if you make a resolve like that, then it has to have something to back it up. It, it should be an, to make an empty promise, even with good intentions. Like, oh, Michael, I just, I just want to give you a... I so admire what you and Patricia are doing. They're do- they are, in fact, doing marvelous work. Uh, what you're doing for children and so forth, it's great. Uh, Michael, I want to give you a million bucks. You know, 
And I don't have a million bucks. Uh, but I want to give you, in fact, I shall give you a million bucks. This is make-believe, by the way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I don't have a clue how to make a million bucks. I don't know how I get a million bucks. Robbing a bank, I just go to jail. So that would be an empty promise, even with a good intention. Making it, and then, and then you know, 20 years later, Michael said, to, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for the check. And I said, yeah, me too. <laughs> you know? um, are you earning any money? No, no. Uh, but you made that promise. I know, but I don't know how to make a million bucks. I say, well, then why did you make that promise? Well, it felt good. Wasn't that okay? You know? I mean, it was nice. Didn't you like hearing me say it? I'll give you a million bucks? And Michael might say, well, yeah, but I kind of thought you meant it. Well, I did, but I just don't know how to make a million bucks. Then it might be better not to make that promise in the first place until you figure out how you might actually make a million bucks, and then it would make, it make, a lot more, make a lot more sense. It would be a lot more meaningful if you had either already had a million bucks or you knew how to make a million bucks before you promise it, right? That's just common sense, right? So once again, it's not a million bucks. It's addressing all sentient beings, and I'm going to bring you to perfect enlightenment. So you better have an agenda. You better have a strategy. You didn't say how long. You didn't say, I'll do this within 100 lifetimes. That's a really good idea. Don't give it a time limit. <laughs> you know, you know, keep it wide open. But this means that until you fulfill that, that the IOU is still there. 100 lifetimes, million lifetimes, three countless eons later, as long as there's any sentient being out there, the IOU, IOU is still there, right? Because indeed, we are repaying the kindness of sentient beings. It's an IOU. I do owe you, all sentient beings, and I'm going to repay every single one of you in the best possible way. So that you, you see why this is an extraordinary resolve. More than offering to mow somebody's lawn and giving a million bucks, it's kind of like bigger. So what's your strategy? Because it's all in Dalai Lama, so many other lamas, magnificent lamas, for whom I have only reverence. That's it. They're quite commonly giving bodhisattva precepts. Right? Quite commonly. That's the problem that, that's the problem you're making when you take the bodhisattva precepts. It's not just a five-minute rit ritual that you can then put in your CV or tell your friends, I received bodhisattva precepts from his holy Dalai Lama. Wow. So what's your strategy? Because this is adjacent to bodhicitta. It's not quite bodhicitta yet, but it's very, very close, making that resolve. And so what's your strategy? And this is part of the meditation this morning. And that is, I, I receive many emails from many people, like we all do, uh, but the ones that come to me generally tend to be more about dharma than not. And so many people, people I know, friends, some students, so forth, strangers, are looking for ways, proposing ways they might be of service. I got an email this morning from, from some fine young man. I'll keep it anonymous. But he would, very good heart, very sincere about his practice. He's been in retreats, devoted himself to meditation very seriously. Authentic, integrity, intelligent, motivated. And he presented a plan to me of, well, do this. He was talking about a, a documentary that he'd like to serve. He'd like to serve the world, be of service to the world. And he's speaking about developing a better website, 
uh, developing some kind of a, a documentary problem, a, a docu documentary film, and maybe some networking among Dharma teachers, meditation teachers, and so on. Uh, so a lot of work. You know, networking this, creating this, doing this project, that project, and I'll need some help for this project, and I can, but I can do this, and so forth. And I looked at it, I kind of got tired as I was looking at it, just because it seemed like a lot of work. And I'm kind of lazy. I like mostly just doing nothing. You know? That's my favorite pastime. And the older I get, the more I like it. <laughs> and so I'm kind of, oh, that's a lot of work. You know? I try to just work in my spare time, for myself. And I find I have less and less. Um, so I wrote to him. I said, well, these are, I, I really have my hands full. I don't think I can really do much here to help you. I'm a collaborator and all that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, brainstorm. Really think about it. And you might consider, you know, what's, just consider on your own, from your own perspective, uh, what's the best you could offer? What's the best you could offer to this world? Because it's clearly, it's do, do it at Dharma. Is it to create this website and this network and a film documentary? Or, because he spent a fair amount of time in retreat, or go back to retreat and actually finish what you started with shamatha and then proceed along the path. What do you think? So just consider it. There's no pressure for me. He has multiple teachers. I'm not his, his one guru. And I, I don't generally, I just, it's not my temperament to take charge of other people. You should be doing this. Now you do this and you go that for three years and so forth. Some lamas do that. and I think it's fine. It's just, my lamas haven't done that to me. That's not the way they've engaged with me. And so I kind of don't do that to my students either. But it's a real question here. In this world, here we are, 2014, the planet as we're just seeing it right now. Uh, just by the way, the world wild, wildlife population, wildlife population has gone down 50% in the last 40 years. 50% in the last, world wildlife population, down 50% in the last 40 years. Last 40, in the last 40 years. BBC, check it on, BBC online right now. I, and my, I, I just looked at it, and, and, in some, and for certain species, down 75%. We're just consuming, consuming uh, the, the fish in the ocean, we're just sucking it dry, you know? And then, and then because of our human activity and encroaching on wildlands all over the place, uh, the wild, wildlife population is just receding. And that's 50% in 40 years. That um, doesn't bode well when we consider we have 7 billion now and we're going to apparently have 11 billion people in, by the end of this century. So we're facing something of a crisis here. You know. uh, and so the question is, what is the greatest we can do? What's the greatest servant that we can possibly offer? And if we are making this resolve to this extraordinary resolve, that's a good translation. I think my, that's my favorite translation. This extraordinary resolve to liberate all sentient beings from all suffering and its causes to bring each one to perfect awakening, then how many websites are you going to build? How many video are you going to make? How many monasteries are you going to build? How many books are you going to publish? How many will be enough? How long will we keep on looking outside to solve the world's problems when that's where almost everybody else is looking and we're seeing we're just going to hell in a, hell in a handbasket? 
environmentally, socially, economically, in so many different ways. Boy, the, the road to hell is path with, with paved with so many good intentions by so many people. But I have to say I was really shocked by that one this morning because if I had not found Dharma, I would have been a, natu- a wildlife biologist, environmentalist, wildlife photography. I would have lived in nature all the time. And I would have, and that was 40 years, I would have started 40 years ago. That's when my career would have started. And would I have made any impact what, as an environmentalist, natural, wildlife biologist, and so forth, naturalist? That was my passion for all of my teenage years. That was it. Would I have made the impact, this one guy, on what's happened to the globe exactly over my career? Because I'd be retiring next year if I were just you know, mainstream. 65, get my gold watch. I'm finished. I think I would just be screaming if I devoted my whole life to that. I think I would just be screaming in pain. I'm glad it didn't go that route because I don't like screaming. I do it too much. I know. Well, maybe I'm not doing it enough. Maybe I should just scream more. <laughs> I know it's irritating, but damn. We are so screwing up this planet. And nobody can persuade me that our worldview has nothing to do with it. The dominant worldview. Nobody can persuade me that. I don't care how many nice people there are who are materialists. Nobody can persuade me that a materialistic worldview is innocent, is on the sideline. Oh, who, me? With materialistic values and a consumer-driven way of life, nobody can tell me there's not a profound interrelationship. You can tell me if you like, but it's falling on deaf ears. I cannot possibly believe the materialistic worldview is unrelated to hedonic priorities, and hedonic priority is unrelated to a consumer-driven life where everything is focused on external criteria of how we're doing, the good life, the growth of the GDP, and so forth. So we see a massive amount, I mean, overwhelming, gargantuan amount of effort, resources, ingenuity, and so forth to improving things externally. And it's good. I mean. I like a new cell phone too, you know, it's good to have better medicine, good, better schools, and so forth, and so on, and so on. But who's going to be just saying, there needs to be some balance here? Because how many people is that bringing to enlightenment? All the external, all the external is massive. The focus on hedonic, massive. But what about, what about? tapping into our inner resources. And there are so many good books. I mean, really, if no more Dharma books were ever published again in Buddhism, not one. They Somehow, you know, the guillotine came down. Allah, okay, you Buddhists, you've done enough already. And Alan Wallace, you especially. Oh, what a literary blabbermouth you are. You know, okay, that's enough. You Buddhists, it's enough books. Would we have enough to achieve enlightenment? Yeah, 30 years ago. 20 years ago, 10 years ago, last year, massively, more than enough. Even my books are enough. They're not my books, the books I've translated. Even those, I mean, I've now translated all of Dujum Lingbist. Who needs more than that? Lamrim Shemu of Songkhwa, that was published. That's, that's, that's enough. And how many, it's one-tenth of them would be enough. How many Dharma centers do we need? You know, How many Dharma centers are there where there's nobody competent to really teach meditation? So it's really boiling down. This is a passionate plea, I think, really. If there was ever a time when there was intense urgency 
People have to put the teachings into practice, transform, liberate, manifest liberation, manifest awakening, gain the realization yourself, and inspire people. If I use the word, inspire the hell out of people. You know, and I mean literally, inspire the hell out of people. Their mental afflictions, their delusions, their craving, you know, inspire the hell out of them. So all the demons are going, not me, and they're fleeing off into the stratosphere. You know, because Yamantaka has arrived. Or Sri Devi, she's one mean woman. You look out for Sri Devi, you know, Pandavamo. I mean, her heart is absolutely bodhicitta, but she doesn't look very friendly. You know, she's ferocious. She's really ferocious. So that's it. That's the meditation for today as we arouse this aspiration to think deeply. And if there are 40 people in the room, 40 individual unique meditations, that's what I would suggest. Individual meditation, make it up close and personal. Don't be looking over to, oh, Natu's really cool, or Elizabeth, oh, she's benevolent, or Michael is so nice, spent a life in Dharma, and, and other people, and, oh, you know, you know there's Doug, and he's, he's a Dharma teacher, and John is a Dharma teacher, and, you know, don't keep on, and, oh, Alan, oh, yeah, Alan will take care of it, no one, he's, he's so good, you know. I would say just don't look over your shoulder to think somebody else is going to take care of it. Number one, any of us can die at any time. So then you just figure, oh, she or she will take care of it. And then they're dead. Well, now what do you do? So this whole notion that I, without reliance upon anybody else, I shall do it, that's Mahayana teaching. So what's your vision? What's your vision? If you're going to be so bold, so galactically, super galactically, cosmically bold as to arouse such a resolve, extraordinary resolve, how are you carrying through? What's your agenda? What's your strategy? What are you going to do? that at least you can say, I was absolutely devoted to moving in the right direction. That I didn't take it lightly, didn't take it casually, didn't give, me, give mere lip service to it, but I actually believe what I'm saying. And the world in a, is a state of unprecedented crisis. The planet, uh, the planet, for the last five billion years, has never been in the situation it's been now. This is new. Never in the history of the planet have 40% of the wildlife, 50%, been wiped out in 40 years. It's never happened. Not from the human activity anyway. A meteor? Okay, maybe. Ice ages? Well, they move. You know, that's every 10,000 years or so. But what we've done here in the 20th century, the age of materialism, I don't, you know, you can't persuade me that's a coincidence. The first century in 200,000 years of humanity, the materialism has dominated human mentality, worldviews, values, and way of life. And we have, oh, we've done some major damage. So how do we repair? How do we save ourselves, protect the planet, protect other species? How do we carry through with this extraordinary resolve? So I'm not going to give any framework. The meditation will be silent. But it comes with that whole rush, that 100-foot wave of the four immeasurables, the four greats, and it's coming to this. Here's my resolve. Good. Now put your money where your mouth is. It's an Americanism. How are you, how are you going to do it? What's your, what's your agenda? How are you going to back that one up? If you can't back it up, have no intention of backing up, then just back off. Back off. No hypocrisy. Okay. We'll have the supplication, the four empowerments, and the silent meditation.
홍막에 육힌 눕삼 삼배마게사 돈보나 얌센 조기 무두에 배마주네 시수다 고두간도 만불코 개기 제수 다둡기 징일납치 색수수 Guru Pema Siri Hong Hong again, Yuki Nukcham Sam Pema Gesan Dombola Yamsen Shoki Mudubne Pema June Shesuta Kodu Kando Mambuko Keki Jesu Datubki Jingil Lapchi Shiksusu Guru Pema Siddhi Hum Hum Agi Yukin Nucham Sam Pema Gesa Dombola Yamsen Shukim Mudubnye Pema Jhune Shesuta Kodu Kando Mambuko Keki Jesu Datubki Jingil Lapchi Shiksusu Guru Pema Siddhi
Switch, switch postures now. <laughs> 